Warning, this episode contains discussion about abuse and certain abusive and coercive control techniques used in inpatient youth treatment facilities. If you or someone you love has been the victim of abuse, some of the information discussed could have the potential to be triggering for you. If you are a victim of abuse, we love you and you are not alone. Be sure you are in a good place mentally and emotionally before engaging with the content of this episode. Please stop listening and get support from a licensed mental health care provider if you feel triggered or overwhelmed by the discussion. Why did you become a therapist after going into a treatment facility? I actually, so my parents had a just horrifically messy divorce. Um, They divorced when I was two and we were in court pretty much straight about one thing or another until I was literally 17 and a half, which is when I got out of treatment. So we, I had been to various therapists, none of which you had ever been beneficial in any way, shape or form. I remember playing in a sand tray at some point, but like never actually being spoken to by the therapist or drawing pictures and having those analyzed. But again, no one ever talking to me. Um, Just these various experiences ending in this treatment center that I went to and just being so upset because I needed help. I was not okay. And none of them had helped me. So I wanted to be, you know, become a therapist who helped, actually helped. But then I found that it's a trap, right? (laughs) You go and you work in these facilities and you want to help. And you're pushing up against the larger system. The therapist, when you're a client, you think the therapists have all the control. But when you're a therapist, you realize you have no control. You're playing within the system. And I tried, at the treatment center that I worked at, I did try to be the therapist who was um, not, who was being honest as much as I could with the parents, you know, letting them know, like, look, your kid's angry at you because you sent them away. (laughs) So they get to be angry at you. And that's, you know, you get to learn how to cope with your kid being angry with you, you know. And also, you know, allowing space for my clients to be human. But then, despite what I was doing with them in the therapy room, and despite that I was trying to help them become themselves and love themselves, I'd go home overnight and come back and they would have lost all their levels or like something big would have happened because anyone in the entire treatment center, a staff that was hired literally yesterday, has the power to strip them of all their levels, to strip them of all their progress and make them start over. Um, so it, it was became this really frustrating back and forth of trying to help these kids and feeling just really stuck. Did you experience that as well, Jessica? 
I'm kind of a pain in the ass. Um, (laughs) Good for you. And yes, like working, trying to work within the system to try and fix the system is very difficult Um, because again, you're coming up against these structural issues of just how the treatment center is set up. I'm a fighter. So like for my clients, I was very loud. I would fight the therapists about it because I was smarter than them anyways. Um, um, You know, because I knew this kid. I see this kid every single day, right? Um, Whereas the therapist meets with them maybe once a week. And I had already been to grad school at this point. I had dropped out. It's a long story. I'm I'm graduated now. Don't worry, I have a degree. (laughs) But I had already been to grad school. So I already had a lot of the training that the literally brand new out of school therapist had. And so I knew pretty much the same things that they knew. And so I would fight for my clients and I would say, no, we're not doing that. They're not doing that. And yes, absolutely. They're going on this trip with their parents to the Grand Canyon. I don't really care what the rules are, but again, you know, then I would get fired. So, (laughs) um, I, but yeah, you come up against the system. Well, you know, that's just how we've always done it. And there's bias within the system as well. I worked with a therapist who had been to treatment herself. She had been open during the interview process that she had been to residential treatment as well, something that I hadn't told them during my interview process. There was a lot of bias against her, that, which, which is just interesting to me that we do that in the field. If we believe in healing, if we believe in recovery, then why would we have a bias against somebody who has supposedly gone through that process themselves? There was another therapist who suggested that she not have access to any of the EHR, any of the note-taking systems, any of the records, because could we trust her? She was a treatment kid. Wow. Yeah. So there's that stigma of treatment kids, and that doesn't go away. That infiltrates into the therapist as well, and then they were constantly questioning her perspective. You know, is she does she just have this bias because she was a treatment kid herself? Or is she just making this recommendation because she's being soft on these kids because she's actually on their side? Which is an insane perspective to take to begin with, that that there are sides. But that's definitely how the kids are seen. And the staff is told that as well. So not only are we telling the parents don't believe the, anything that they're saying because they're big fat liars, but also all of the staff, you you look at them as liars. Wow. They're just lying. They're trying to manipulate you. They're trying to get out. They're trying to get their way. That's all they care about. You know, that like these kids have no soul or something. And so that's not just within like the parent situation. This is throughout the treatment center. You don't trust them. They'll manipulate you. They're going to try and like get things from you. Um, And for me, like children are not manipulative. They're just trying to get their needs met. They're trying to find the effective way to do that, right? right? And they'll do what is successful for them. Exactly. That is not manipulation. Yeah. And so... But when we already believe this about these kids coming in, they're troubled. You know, they are, they are troubled. Not that they need help. Not that they're struggling. Not that they need someone to talk to. Not that they're severely, severely depressed. No, it's just that they're troubled. 
you know, they're a hard kid. You must have gone to treatment because you did something really bad. Oh my gosh, the amount of times I've heard that. And that is the assumption. That is absolutely the assumption. And so that experience that you had is not your own. There are plenty of other places that that is a thing. Again, the stigma of, oh, you went to treatment? You went to rehab? Like it's very much, there's an idea there of what that means. I hear that and it feels like it is a form of prejudice that you're talking about even ranges into an adult who went through a program who we should view this person as that is invaluable. That is invaluable experience to have as someone working in the field who can help make the field better and help you realize what works and what doesn't. What just causes the superficial masking of I'm fine and I'm giving you what you want versus real change, but they don't want to be bothered with that. It's it's almost like an acceptable type of prejudice where we're going to dehumanize you, which then when we do that, we can feel better about or justify abusing you, coercing you, using shame, using all these things that in the field, I feel like we understand now are toxic. Well, and that is part of the dehumanization process. Um, that is part of making them bad. Well, yeah. And if I need to, I need to justify my perspective that I need to tear you down and, and tear you apart because you're not right and you're not okay. These truly normative things you're doing as a human being trying to develop into an adult, like you said, find your way, you're bad. So we need to tear you down. We need to rebuild you. Right. And like you were saying too, that, that creates the openness and the acceptance of abuse. And on the other end, for staff, um, Jessica's the exception, having gotten, you know, graduate education as a staff member, most staff are, they're paid really, really low. They are not trained at all in anything. They're essentially trained by the treatment center that they're prison guards for these troubled, crazy teenagers. And that's where a lot of the abuse happens, not just physical, but emotional or just stripping kids of their, their rights. Their, their, when I say their levels, typically in a treatment center setting, there's going to be certain stages or levels that they have to go through before they graduate. So if a staff member just suddenly just takes their levels because they're in a bad mood that day, or I saw instances where it was racism based, or it could be, they don't have to have a reason. They can kind of make up a reason. And they have usually just just no training whatsoever. But again, the parents are told that that's not the case, that they are trained. They're not trained. And it just feels like that, the use of levels as truly a more punitive thing. I'm sure they have to work X amount of, show put X amount of effort into achieving these levels and presenting well so that, like you said, they can earn a graduation. Like, that the toxic mentality that reinforces that you can make one mistake or have a bad moment or have a bad day. I mean, for heaven's sakes, teenagers are hormonal as we all are, but to a greater degree, and they're trying to figure it out. So you have a rough moment and days or weeks of effort get to be wiped away. You're reinforcing this sense of there is no room for error in life and all this work, you make a mistake and that means you've made no progress. That means none of it counts. And I, you know, I dare to venture a lot of where the parenting goes wrong with these kids is there's those types of mentalities are applied to them that the kid can have a rough day and that wipes away 10 days of 
them being functional and them striving and trying. And of course you lose hope. Of course you then just go, I'm not going to listen. I'm not going to try. I can have a hundred days straight of amazing, quote unquote, amazing behaviors my parents love, but I make one mistake Absolutely, and it doesn't matter. And it's the level system too. There's privileges that come along with the levels typically. So the treatment center that I went to. Privileges or rights. Right. Depending on who you ask. (laughs) Yeah, for real. Uh, So at the treatment center that I went to, I started out on double shoulder. So that meant that I could not put my feet fully on the ground and put pressure on them unless there were two people each with their hands on my shoulders. And then I went, I graduated to one shoulder where I only had to have one person with their hand on my shoulder before I could go to stand up. Or and, walk around. Or walk around. Is this a all. common thing or is this just at the facility? It was at the facility I was. It wasn't at the facility I worked at though. Any other, do you have other experience with that, Jessica? Um, so what you're talking about comes from straight. So any facility that is a offshoot of straight will have something similar to that. I hear that and my brain almost just goes straight to brainwashing, brainwashing, brainwashing. You can't even stand up without someone imposing on your body. You should just be able to stand up and stand in your body. Exactly. Without You should weird be things. able to speak out loud, right? That was another thing we were not allowed to do on any level. You couldn't just, you couldn't talk out loud um, unless you were sitting on the stool talking about what a terrible person you are. Then you could, then you could talk out loud. So then after single shoulder, I graduated to TNR, um, which I got my shoes back. Before this, I wasn't allowed to have shoes. Shadow. Oh, shadow. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yes. Shadow. And then TNR where you get your shoes back. And then I think you have to be on, is it level four or level five before you are allowed to look at other people? Five. Five. You have to be a level five before you can look at other people in the room, other kids that you're in treatment with. Opposite sex. Opposite sex. Um, When you're on second level, you can look at same sex people regardless of what level they're on. If you're on the first level, you are not allowed to look at anyone um, that is on first level. You can only look at other levels. Do they have you wear badges or colors? Or like, how are you supposed to know who you can look at? <laughs> no, you don't. That's, that's, so, so someone else knows. You right. don't. You know. You know because every week um, there's a big ceremony deciding who's moving forward in levels and who's Who's going to go into the Hunger Games. Yeah. That's what's decided. <laughs> and then what level is it that you get to stop wearing your hair in a ponytail and no makeup? Do you remember? Second. Okay, so help me understand from the clinical, quote-unquote, justifiable side of it, what is all that about? Why can't, why can't we stand up without hands on our shoulders? Why can't we have shoes? Why can't we look at other people? What is happening there? Because they're a run risk. They're going to run away. If they look at someone? Or is that yes. just the shoes? No, if you're looking at someone, then you are um, planning <laughs> to run away. It's just so ridiculous. So the two people on the side of you are meant to hold you down. Correct. And keep you from... So do they walk with you? Yes. Everywhere you go? Yes. That when you sit down, they won't have to touch you anymore. But if you are standing up walking around, someone is touching you at all times. So where did... So did you say that started at straight? Correct. 
and what do they, so it's, it's all about the kids running. That's the therapeutic, uh, justification. What's, what is the, from your perspective, what are they trying to do to the person's psyche, to their emotions? So that is another, um, system of control. Um, that is another way to dehumanize you. We're going to take your shoes away. Um, we're not going to allow you to even stand up. You're not allowed to look at anybody because, you know, you're a piece of shit liar. And so you have to earn those things back. Correct. Okay. You have to earn everything back. You lose everything. You're not allowed to wear your own clothes. Um, You are not allowed to have any makeup or hair. You can't listen to music. You can't read a book. You can't watch TV. Nothing. You have to earn everything back. You couldn't even sing or hum anything that wasn't Disney. Or approved. It like gave me chills when you said you lose everything. Like it, it, it makes me want to cry because it's, I know we're like talking about your right to just exist, but what else is lost? What's lost that we can't see when that happens to an adolescent and they go in and they're losing all of that, but there's so much more they lose. What's in, in your interviews, what have you witnessed that people lose in that process? They often lose their entire sense of self. Um, any self-esteem or confidence that they maybe had is gone. Sometimes even coping skills, they, they lose, um, you know, because you're not allowed to close your eyes in group. So any coping skills of like saying a quick prayer or doing a mantra or anything like that, you lose. You lose your own body, which for a trauma survivor is devastating because they've already lost their ability to connect with their body. And now they're not even allowed to have their own body to themselves. Um, And then you add on these strip searches that they're uh, forced to do. You know, and, and the no privacy and, and all of that. So And sleeping with only your, a t-shirt and underwear. That's correct. all you were ever allowed to sleep with. And you're sleeping with other people mm-hmm. in these rooms and having all of your everything gone through by other people every single day, being in bathrooms and bedrooms that are, you know, the windows are screwed shut, you know, that's your prisoner and you have no rights. You are no one. You have nothing. It is very much a dehumanization process, you know, Stanford prison experiment. It's a dehumanization process. It's the, I'm going to beat you down and then build you back up into the person that I want you to be, that I think that you should be, because this is my image of what a functioning person looks like. I hear all of that. So I have a, a grandfather who spent a great majority of the end of his life in prison. And I hear that and I almost go, that almost sounds worse than what he talked about experiencing in prison, because at least there was some sense of, well, you've done this horrible thing, you're in here for life. And so, yeah, we're, we're going to moderate your behavior to a certain degree. But nobody was telling them they couldn't look at people. No one was telling them they couldn't sleep in clothing. No one was telling them they couldn't hum music. No one was telling them they couldn't have their shoes. My grandfather had to kill someone to be put into prison and take have certain rights taken away to protect society from him. We have these children who I almost hear 
in some cases are treated worse. And what did they have to do to get there? I'm hearing be teenagers. I'm sure in some cases there might have been really serious or scary behaviors, but to have your shoes taken away and your ability to look at who you want and your ability to take a shit and not have someone watching you or the... I almost want to ask, did they control how you breathed? Are you not allowed to <laughs> breathe at a certain pace? Or I don't even know if there was that level of control over my grandfather. And he was in prison because he killed someone. I worked in a jail, and I can tell you that jail is better. Um, and there were multiple kids that I talked to that, I mean, they're adults now, sorry, um, that were court ordered there that they either needed to complete treatment or they'll go to juvie. And, um, all of them said, if I would have known what I was going to experience, I would have just gone to juvie. I would have just spent a month there because again, they're marketed as we're going to help you and they don't market the dehumanization process. So is it worse than prison? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you don't even have to commit a crime to be put there. Oh, no. You can just, like, have a bad attitude. As far as I know, I had sex with my boyfriend. So that <laughs> Horrible. was, that oh was my it. Gosh. Prison for life. Yeah, that's <laughs> – as far as I – that's the only thing I can really put my finger on as to why I ended up in residential treatment. Mm-hmm. Or you're gay. Mm-hmm. Or you don't want to be affiliated with your parents' chosen faith. Or you got caught smoking pot once. Um, not not to say that there are not kids that definitely need severe intervention. Sure. Um, there were several people that came through that did have a heroin addiction that were using meth consistently. Um, or that are really suicidal chronically in and out of Chronically suicidal. Absolutely. So there were kids that were experiencing these terrible things. They still don't need to be dehumanized. They yeah. still don't need to be treated like worse than criminals. And I I know you were, I don't remember if you mentioned it while we've been recording, but before, often these programs, there is no empirical underpinning under so many of these things that are done. You have all of these systems that are modeled after this originally flawed pattern, which seems very fixated on power, control, compelling for superficial good presentation. And that's what we call healed and better. Are most of these programs still stuck in that cycle? How much is there really the integration of empirically supported practices or trauma-informed care? Yeah, sure. So they're advertised as that. We are trauma-informed. We use, we know we're evidence-based, which is half true. Um, They used evidence-based treatment. You know, they'll have DBT classes. They'll do EMDR. But the structure of how the program controls is the part that is an evidence-based. In fact, it's completely not evidence-based. We know that power and control is not healthy in any setting at all. They advertised as doing evidence-based treatment, but the structure of the program is not evidence-based. And that ends up outweighing 
it. So there, I think there is some benefit sometimes, some skills learned, some stuff processed through. I think that there are better ways to, to go about teen treatment. And I think that they deserve to be explored. I think that our teens deserve better than this. Their families deserve better than this. And one thing that that really blew my mind uh, when I was working at the residential treatment center is I was a little bit down because one of my kids, one of my clients had had a bit of a rough time after going home, a really, really rough time. And he was he was going through a lot. And I was talking to my boss about it. And his response was, oh, you know, you're not responsible for what happens after they're out of here. Right. I was like, oh my gosh, well, what is the point then? What am I, what am I here for? Just to try to get him to conform. And and that's, yes, that is the answer to get him to conform so that we can say, we can tie a pretty bow on it and we can send them home. And then whatever else happens is not our problem. And that's, that's the system. There, there has to be a better way to do it. Yeah, it's very much, well, it just didn't work for them. Or they didn't put in the work. They they didn't put in the work. It works if you work it. Hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Yep. So I'm wondering, is there anything else that you feel like it would be important for parents, families, people to know about these kinds of facilities as they exist now? Before maybe it might be great to shift to talking about spitballing, how might these treatment programs be improved? I know you were saying, I don't, we don't have the answers, but maybe we can explore more of that. But is there anything else you feel like you'd like to share? Well, I think a really important aspect is levels of care, that there are way more options other than residential. I think a lot of people just think residential because that's the word on the street, but there are so many other options. And I think not only parents need to know that, but therapists need to know that. Residential is last case scenario. You see that kid three times a week. You get them after school groups. You have them participate in, you know, something. You have them do maybe even just like intensive outpatient. After school, they go and do skills training for four hours. DBT is really, really helpful for teens because there's a lot of distress tolerance there. Even do day treatment. The last case scenario should always be removal from the home. And they already do that in, you know, even CPS, right? Like Child Protective Services doesn't take that child out unless they absolutely have to. And it should be the same for residential. Currently, is there any um, is there any level placer in place as far as assessment? So if you work in drug treatment, in addiction recovery, often treatment centers will use the ASAM or they'll be required to use the ASAM by the overseeing entities, the insurance companies, and the ASAM determines based on the severity of the client's symptoms, which level of care they should be in. Is there anything like that currently for the teen treatment industry? No, nothing that's required. Um, You know, earlier you were talking about like admission specialists. Those are just moms of kids that used to be in treatment. (laughs) These are not therapists. These are not people that have specialized training in anything. These are just like people that work there. Like, yeah, my cousin was in treatment and, 
you know, I think I can do this. Like, this is not a professional here. Um, and so when you're talking about like levels of care, the ASAM is one of them, right? Um, and there are a couple of other ones that look at symptoms. And again, residential is last case scenario. Many insurance companies also have levels of care that are required before they'll even pay. But again, there's no regulation. Like treatment centers can just lie. Mm. And can just frame the information about the potential client in such a way that they get that approval. Right. So a kid that smokes pot once, check he's using drugs. Check yeah, he's lying to social behaviors. Antisocial behaviors. It's like, no, he was just at a party and like hung out with his friends and smoked weed. It's okay. Um, and so levels of care is something that has to be I mean, is that even taught in grad school anymore um, or at all of levels of care that you don't send a kid to residential? You don't send a kid to wilderness. Originally, how we treat these kids is how they treat adults. Teenagers are not mini adults. They're just bigger kids. Developmentally brain-wise, they're just bigger kids. They are not mini adults. And so we shouldn't be treating them like adults. Wilderness therapy started with adults um, down at BYU and morphed into this teen treatment thing. That's typically where it starts, or at least a good amount of time. When the kids are transported, they'll go to wilderness therapy for a few months and really get broken down. So they're, you know, they're pooing in a bucket. They're doing everything for themselves. They're already really worn down a lot of times before they even step foot into the actual treatment center. Which why, why is the wearing down seen as such a vital part of these processes? I know. So if you, both of you, I'm interested in your perspectives from the therapeutic side, the side that looks pretty and checks the box. And then from the coercive control side. Why, why do you need to wear them down? Why do you need to break them down? Therapeutically, I, I think that it's very much of um, we have to get them out of their environment that they're in that is causing these behaviors. And so we're going to take them out of their complete society and we're going to put them in a new place and we're going to strip them of any you know image that they think that they are. You know, we're going to... Um, you know, start from scratch. Unbalance them. Yeah. I've heard it worded as a jump start where they're going to to go and wilderness therapy is just so effective because they're outside and it's just like Jessica is saying, it's so different from what they would expect or anything that they've ever experienced before. And these therapists at wilderness program are just so good at really getting that intensive work done. But when they get to treatment, the long-term treatment, that's where the more long-term steady stuff is going to happen. So you're going to see a lot of really good short-term progress in wilderness and they have to graduate wilderness too. It's not a set amount of time. So they, you're going to see that really great progress in wilderness and then they're going to get to the treatment and they're, they're going to start noticing those 
um, those underlying behaviors that pop up or those things that they struggle with on a deeper level. And that's going to happen over months and months and months. So it, it's, that's, you know, that's how I've heard it. Um, from the non-therapeutic side, I definitely see it as a, we need to get these kids into a place where they are as brainwashable and beaten down as possible to where we can manage them more easily so that they take up less resources from therapist hours to the amount of staff that need to be on the floor with them so that they're not causing a bunch of problems, trying to start fights with other kids, stuff like that. So they already know they are not free and they do not have rights. Yeah, it's very much a a coercion tactic, a control. Um, If I strip you of everything, then I can control you. Um, Part of coercive control is isolation. Um, This happens in domestic violence uh, situations where one of the biggest things is isolation. And so if I can isolate you from everything that you've ever known, then I can break you. Part of, um, we call it thought reform instead of brainwashing. (laughs) Um, Part of that is uh, isolation. It's about control. If I can control every single thing that you do, I can control your mind. I can make you think and act exactly how I want you to act. Um, so that is part of it. Well, and my thoughts definitely jump to domestic violence and abuse in abusive relationships, abusive couples, is I'm going to be the one to break you down and let you know you're a piece of shit and you're undesirable and no one will ever want you. And getting you regurgitating that or reflecting back to me, like you said, this getting you perceiving, I have this control over your life. I have this power over your decision making, but then I'm the one that builds you up. I, I'm the one who breaks you down. I'm your destroyer and your builder. I'm your, you know, hellfire and your savior. And it is absolutely abuse. Mm-hmm. It's 100% abuse rather than, as we've talked about, coming from a place of, oh, you're, you're experiencing normative behavioral and hormonal changes and you're trying to figure out what works and you're trying to figure out who you are and and what life you want to live and hey let's help you find adaptive ways to get what you want and to feel happy and fulfilled in your life and to have the relationships you want it's absolutely mind-boggling to me that um that we it's been acceptable to treat and it, that metaphor is perfect with the abuse. And it comes complete with that gaslighting of you got yourself here. All of this is happening because your you, best thinking your got you best here. thinking got you here. Which, Blah. by the way, teenagers don't think. Right? So, <laughs> but it's that we, we hear that, though. In other words, it's you, you made me hit you. You made me so angry. Don't make me angry. And then I won't hit you. And how there isn't a greater understanding that this is what we're doing to our teenagers. Like you said, your best thinking resulted in me taking from you any autonomy. For me, not having been through it, not having worked in that setting, I see that and go, how does someone survive as someone working in that setting? Obviously, how does someone survive being a patient there or a victim of that abuse? How did you survive in that setting? Because how long roughly 
were you in that type of work environment of these residential treatment settings? So I didn't just work in the one that Andrea was in. Um, So I probably spent about 10 years um, in different types of treatment center, adolescent treatment center settings. What was that like for you? What did it do to you? It's traumatizing. It's my own trauma I had to work through when I started to understand what I did. Um, There's a sense of like survivor's guilt there of although I thought I was doing what I was supposed to do, um, I now know better and can look back and be like, oh my God, I did that to that kid. I said those words to those parents. And so my own therapy comes from my time working there. Having to take kids down every day, that is part of the job. You mean physically, right? Physically Physically. taking them down to the ground. Um, Many treatment centers train their staff in how to take kids down. Um, and, And what's sad, I want to add a little thing to that. What's sad is these kids are so deprived of touch that sometimes they get taken down intentionally mm-hmm. because they just need human touch. Mm-hmm. Right. In a lot of treatment centers, n- the kids are not allowed to touch each other. There's no hugging. There's no, you know, high fives, nothing. And so, you know, again, like as a staff member, though, taking down a child every day, hearing them, I mean, I could go on and make everybody sad, but that is traumatizing in and of itself. I've also interviewed past staff members that say the same thing, that they have nightmares about being there. Like, hey guys, that's not normal. Yeah, <laughs> You're not supposed to have nightmares about places you just don't work. That's not okay. So, I, you know, that it, it is affecting the staff in a different way. Um, the ones that are sensitive, the ones that are really there to help people that actually think that they're doing something. Well, and especially too, I've heard it mentioned that sometimes part of the graduation process is then you become staff. And so you are almost in a sense further victimized or indoctrinated, but from that side of it. And I can't imagine being, to me, I almost see systemically it's this method for these programs to try to socially continue to get buy-in that what's happening is okay. Because if if I brainwash, condition a kid to be, oh yeah, it saved my life. It's, you know, that Stockholm syndrome. And then I get them working as staff. And so I, I'm indoctrinating them a further X amount of years and time. And then maybe they're out in the community and they're saying, oh my gosh, this is incredible. And as you said, it, 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 Maybe later on, it ends up hitting them. Oh my gosh, what have I done? Or they become therapists and open their own treatment center. Mm. Yeah, very there, true. There are multiple uh, staff members that used to work there that are now therapists and run their own treatment centers. And I can only imagine if you've been indoctrinated to that level and it's been normalized and it's been rubber stamped, you're probably that much more difficult to wake up 
and to get them to open their eyes and acknowledge this is not okay. What happened to you was not okay. Because then they're having to realize they've been the victim of trauma and what you're doing to others is not okay. Then they have to be awakened to that they have been a perpetrator of abuse. And it's incredibly, it's incredibly difficult. And as part of the brainwashing, there are... Um, there's this, these statistics told to these kids that you know one third of you that are going to from AA that was not evidence based. It was not evidence based, which <laughs> AA is a whole other story, <laughs> but a whole other podcast. We will talk about that another <laughs> time. <laughs> um, one third of you will end up dead. One third of you will end up in jail, and the one third of you who really work this program are going to survive and you're going to live lives. So you can see how with all of the other brainwashing and all of the other, you know, stripping of, of control and beating them down and building them up. And with, um, I remember having multiple groups where we were actually told to physically move into which category we thought that we belonged to, right, of that statistic. Then, of course, from there, there's going to be some people who believe I am alive today I am okay today and I am not in jail today because of this program. It's very culty in that way. So then you're going to perpetuate that. And yeah, I mean, years down the line, it's going to be incredibly difficult to acknowledge, wow, that wasn't okay. I'm not okay. And what I'm doing to these other people who really actually need help is not okay. And I spoke with several of the interviews I had that remember those groups still to this day. It's been 15, 20 years since they've been in treatment and they still remember to this day what category they were in, who told them that they were going to be in that category. I mean, this is traumatizing stuff. And they become refining moments of defining self or even rooting a fear. Like if I don't live according to this and acknowledge how wonderful it was, I'm going to die. I well, mean, self-fulfilling prophecy. Exactly. Right? And and if I don't do exactly right, if I make a mistake, then I'm in the other category and I should just give up. What's the point? No, and it seems like the, all those type of coercive, uh, you know, um, behaviors about you make one little mistake and you can lose your levels, you can lose, you know, your ability to get to that light at the end of the tunnel. And then these overarching, really destructive experiential moments where they're setting up these premises that are just bullshit. But then they've conditioned these, these vulnerable minds to feel like whatever is being told to them is truth and it's, it's applicable to them and they're, they're stifling any abilities. What I hate about general education systems, stifling one's ability to say, what if there isn't, it isn't just these three categories. And what if you're not the answer? Not allowed right? You must fit in this little box. It's, it makes me angry. I'm having, I'm finding myself having to regulate myself. It makes me feel upset for you. It makes me feel upset for you. And for people currently in programs like that, how many, do we know how many kids or I should say adolescents are in these programs currently? At least 200,000. Wow. Throughout the nation. Um, Every year. Wow. And that's 200,000 people who are going to come out into society and have a whole other set of trauma that they need to try to work past and maybe not even realize that they've been traumatized. What is the 
better way to do this. Yeah, what else what else is possible? So what's That's a possible? good question. <laughs> That's a good question and it's is such a hard one to answer cuz there there will be situations where kids need to be in residential settings. So what could that look like? What have you thought of, Jessica? Well, I think there's a difference between a residential setting and a group home. Uh, there were many 17-year-olds that went through treatment that like yeah, bro, you just need to live long enough to get out of your house. And so again, there's a difference though. Um, I think consent, get their consent of like, hey, things are not okay. Tell them the truth. Um, There needs to be a maximum amount of time that these kids are kept. There has to be. The research is showing that again, more than three months out of the home causes irreparable attachment damage. And so, I mean, a lot of these kids are coming from out of state and they live here for 18 months. They might visit home twice, three times in that time. And the damage that that is causing, that doesn't get them closer to their families. That doesn't create communication in the system. Well, let's be real. Even people who have been found guilty of crimes, they are given a term of time, right? Talking about people who actually socially, we say, we don't want you to do this behavior. We'd like to reinforce you not, you know, breaking the law. They are given a sentence, quote unquote. And yet here are these kids again, who are against their will taken into these facilities where in some cases it's worse than a prison or a jail experience, and they're not given a specific length of time. And I understand as a clinician, I'm sure the justification could be, well, we don't know how long it's going to take. It just depends on if they work their program. Yeah, it's we don't know. And so that there's not this bookend we can set. Everybody's treatment is different. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Depends on your specific symptoms. But how horrifically disempowering that is. And two, then as clinicians or care facilities – how are you really incentivized to help these people heal more quickly and efficiently? If And as parents as well, what's your incentive to do the work? What I would love to see uh, in order to get the parents involved is to have more of a, a family, you know, have a base that is a treatment center and the whole family comes out and does the work. They do the trauma work. Statistics show, I can't remember the exact statistic, but I know I, I did look it up. Um, the vast majority of these kids going into residential treatment center, they and or their family members have experienced significant trauma. So they need trauma healing. They need you know the EMDR. They need the DM, DBT to be able to learn those skills, to be able to interact with each other. So if they were to go to intensive facilities where the parents are working on either co-parenting or couples therapy, they have uh, maybe the same therapist or a different specialist working with the family. They have the experiential stuff, which is just so incredibly beautiful and vital for healing families in a, in a different alternative way. Uh, if they were able to spend you know a few weeks together in these situations and then go home and have, you know, parent coaching or have somebody check on them within the home and have a program that they're meant to follow and, and maybe go back and forth like that until the family's ready to be more on their own or phase them out in some way or another. And for those kids who experience or their teenagers 
who experience that extreme suicidality, there is so much amazing research showing and so many just results showing that ketamine-assisted therapy is really incredible for that. Um, so even including the options to receive that type of therapy while they're going through this, you know, really treat the system, really make sure that those kids know that, yeah, there are things that they can heal and there are things that they can improve on and they're not the entire problem. It's the family as well. The parents need to engage. Yeah, I think getting rid of the message that they're the problem is one of the biggest pieces. Um, I think, you know, I wonder why don't we do this same thing to adults? And then if, if we would never do that to an adult, why are we doing that to a child? Why are these treatment centers not run like a regular treatment center? Um, for an adult. Um, why are they stripped of all of their rights? An adult would never, ever put themselves in a teen treatment center. Ever. Um, because, again, it's dehumanizing. And so, you know, why do we have to have this difference in how we treat uh, addiction, for example? Um, you know, one of the other issues is that all the problems are put all in one place. So we've got kids that struggle with depression. Over here, we've got a drug addict. Um, over here, we've got a, a kid that has uh, been through a, a tremendous amount of trauma. You know, this kid's dad died and that's the only reason he's acting out. Like we're putting them all in one place and like hope it works. But as we know as therapists, that's not how you do that. Because those treatments are going to be so different. So that's like taking someone who's suffering with diabetes and someone who's suffering with cancer and someone who's suffering with this. And you're going, there you go. You're all going to your chemo treatment and you're going to this extreme. And to me, it just, it feels like overall too, there needs to be this movement away from making a choice of how you do treatment based on convenience. It's convenient, more convenient to just send two burly guys to abduct a child at night with their parents' permission than it is to do the work of maybe weeks and months of, like you said, helping that adolescent understand, man, things are really off. This isn't, you know, motivational interviewing. This isn't working for you either. It's not getting you what you want. Getting the buy-in. And like you said, it takes a lot more work to determine what's the actual right level of care. It makes me think of like with working with horses, there's that um, at like as firm as necessary, but as gentle as possible idea. It's, uh, why do they take everything away? From my perspective, it's because they know any little bit of leverage that they leave is just inconvenient for them to have to deal with. You have some bit of power. I can't fully control, control you. And so it's this idea of jerking the reins when you have somebody who just needs like a gentle nudge. And I think part of what probably contributes to a lot of these kids' struggles from a systemic perspective of working with parents, working with children. Convenience parenting, rather than understanding why am I responding a certain way to my child? What do I hope I'm reinforcing? What's in some ways the behavior perspective? What's the function of the behavior? How am I reinforcing that? I just want them to stop screaming. So I'm going to yell at them or I'll slap them. Or, instead of I have to do that deeper work to really get to the root of it and then help them facilitate 
an adjusted behavior or adjusted way of managing emotion. No, instead, I just want to force it. So I think overall, again, getting to why we're okay with that in general with anybody, but why we're okay with that with children or with adolescents when we understand to some degree that that's not okay with adults. But I don't know if you guys have ever read The Anatomy of Peace. Um, That's a great book. It makes me think of what you're talking about. It tells the story of certain principles based on a family who's a teenager or adult child is struggling and they need extra support, but they brought the families in, in this kind of premise to actually do kind of this family training and then working with that individual of, hey, are you willing to go into treatment versus we're just going to force you? It's a book that kind of demonstrates some of what you're talking about. I feel like a lot of these treatment center, residential treatment centers need to be turned into day treatment and IOP um, because they're, they're so much better in actually treating trauma um, because they don't have those elements of control. They're actually focusing on therapy and they're focusing on skills training and they're focusing on family environment and systems work. Many times it's not the kid, it's the super abusive parent. And in evaluating standard levels of care, it's like, this kid's fine. Dad, however, is is up here. And that way we can actually treat what's going on. And sitting down with the families and being like, hey, so dad, um, we need a talk. You know, and having people be able to have those conversations. However, in treatment centers now, it's never about what mom and dad did. Uh, Those therapeutic sessions are all about why the kid's a piece of shit. Like you said, Andrea, sitting you on the stool and you may not have the right to talk unless you've got the spotlight on you and you're going to be talking about what a piece of shit you are. Exactly. And that that's something that I really wished, um, you know, when I was working in treatment, it was so hard when the parents were not making any progress. And I mean, you could try in a virtual family session once a week. But that's if there's no buy-in, there's this idea that my kid is mentally ill. They have a mental illness and that means they have some kind of something wrong with their brain, right? And and unfortunately, that's the fault of the entire you know, psychology field, psychiatry field in general. Um, but it gets really intensified in these settings where it's like, hey, my kid has these issues, these diagnoses. I do not have these diagnoses as the parent, so I can go about living my life because they are getting treated. Similar to, you know, if they if they had cancer, I wouldn't go to chemo too. They would go to chemo. Why would I need treatment for their cancer? So the the parent just doesn't have the buy-in. I think that there needs to be a lot more upfront education about family systems. And there should be a requirement that the parents be not just getting parent education, because that that happens, but yeah, what no, good they is... They need to be in therapy. They need to be in therapy. They Absolutely. need to be in intensive Absolutely. therapy. If you are to the point where you're sending your kid away to go live somewhere, then you need to also be committed to going to therapy maybe even multiple times per week. Otherwise, your kid's getting sent home. Absolutely. It's very, again, it's very much a system. A systems work. I tell parents all the time, 
Children are a product of their environment. What is happening in your child's environment that they're behaving this way? Because it's not just, kids don't just be like, for no reason. No, children do what they learn. So if your child is acting out, whatever that means, then what, how, how, where did they learn that? Where did your child learn to keep in all their emotions? Where did your child learn to um, yell until they get their way? Or to seek substances to numb. Yeah, weird. How did that happen? Oh, well, dad's on opioids and has been for the last 20 years. Weird how your child would learn that. Parents don't like me, clearly. Um, (laughs) But again, you know, children are a product of their environment. So what's happening in their environment? And when we take these kids out of the environment and put them in residential and then send them right back to the same environment, nothing's going to change. The only reason that they might be a little bit better is they're afraid to go back or they have learned some skills and coping skills and they learned that it's not them and it's actually their parents. I had this horrible thought as you were speaking that when you were talking about children and their behaviors are the product of the family environment and the parenting really taking a hard look as an industry and society, what are the real products of these types of treatment environments? Are they really doing the good work and the healing and the propping up the next generation? Or are they just more effective abusers than potentially where they might be coming from? And this is the thing in general in our industry that bothers me, and I've experienced it from other therapists. I've seen people experience it. One thing that bothers me is when people use the knowledge or the skills we receive as professionals to be coercive and manipulative or to disempower people or to abuse. And so I, I really appreciate what it sounds like you are trying to do, which is trying to shine a light on this. And I'm sure we could talk for so much longer too. I don't know how long we've been talking now, almost I think two hours But um, I'm wondering for you, what would be a message you would have to parents who are thinking this is the right option for their children? What would you want to say to them or what would you want them to know about this choice that a lot of parents don't seem to know? I would say, I know you're afraid. I know you're afraid. I know you love your kid. Um, I know that you're at your wit's end and you don't know what else to do. But these treatment centers will not help your kid. They will hurt them. There are other options out there. Explore every option. Um, Even if it's you going to therapy yourself to learn how to deal with your child's issues. Seek out any other option rather than sending them away. Because in the end, it will not help. It may take 15, 20, 30 years for your child to tell you that, but they eventually will tell you that. If you had a message for the treatment facilities or people who are vehement defenders of what they do and how they do it, what would you want to say to them? Show me the research. Show me that it's evidence-based. Show me that coercive control tactics are actually good for an adolescent's development. Show me how this doesn't interrupt an attachment issue. Show me how um, it's supposed to work. And I'm not saying looking at the 
testimonials. You know, I'm not saying I want to hear from parents. I'm not saying I want to see your questionnaires that are filled out by parents or the CAQHs or the, you know, YSRs of children that have been there for nine months that don't know the difference. I'm saying, show me the research. What happens to these kids 10, 15, 20, 30 years down the line? Show me the research and then I'll shut up. Beautiful. I don't know if you have any additional questions before we wrap up. I think up. that was an incredible last note. Oh. Um, but I would say to our listeners that I hope you got something out of this today. I know it was uh, a really powerful messages from Jessica for me, um, for other therapists who are working in residential or who are considering working in residential or maybe have worked in these kinds of programs. Um, we'd love to hear from you. What were your experiences for people who have, you know, are survivors of the troubled teen industry? There are therapists who are advocating for you. There are people who, like us, who know that this, this is wrong and there is movement in the right direction. You are not alone in your experience. For anyone who is interested in finding a solution, this is something that's always on my mind, um, something that I'm really passionate about, something that I've thought a lot about. I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to talk about what are the solutions or if there's any investors out there that want to invest in, in figuring out or even starting a treatment center that, that could be totally different and actually effective, reach out, talk to us. We want to make change. We don't want to just be sad about it. And I, I wanted to add to what, Andrea, what you were saying is if you are a victim of these types of treatment settings, you're not wrong. There's nothing wrong with you. You probably have not received the support, the loving, the parenting, that you deserve. And so if you are one still out there trying to work on healing or struggling with that, you're not alone. And also there is nothing wrong with you. There is a whole lot right with you. And if you're having a hard time finding support, reach out to us so that we can help you connect with the person who can help you so that you can heal past whatever traumas these treatment settings might have left you with. Not only is there nothing wrong with you, but you're not crazy. It really was that bad, and it really did happen. Even if no one believes you, I believe you. And there are good therapists. There are good people that actually want to help, that actually want to understand. And again, you know, reach out because that is something that we are constantly working on. Thank you so much for coming and talking to us about this really important and serious topic. Would you be interested in coming back in the future to talk about this or other topics? Absolutely. I could talk about this all day. Wonderful. I've, you know, got lots of things to say. Perfect. Well, <laughs> thank you so much. For those of you, I mean, nobody can see this. Um, Jessica has just a giant stack of research <laughs> with her, all of these papers. So I 100% believe that we could talk about this all day and it would all be really incredible information. So we'll definitely plan a time in the near future to continue the conversation. So thank you so much. And thank you everyone for listening. Reach out with any questions, any comments, and we hope everybody has a beautiful day. We don't need no miracle. I think we've seen it all. Just make the go. I'll go run.
是。